you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by my Berkeley Business School classmate, Mike Trigg, who is a new author of a novel titled Bitflip. Mike is an experienced Silicon Valley executive and entrepreneur. Over his 25-year career, he's been a founder, executive, and investor in dozens of venture-funded technology startups. He's also written for TechCrunch, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company magazines. Mike currently is an advisor and an angel investor, along with being a newly published author. Today, we're going to be talking about Mike's career, his venture into creativity, and of course, the book, which has ambition as a central theme. So Mike, I'm so happy to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kathy, for having me on. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk about all these different topics. And before we get into the book, I'd first love to just delve into your own career and then get into like what brought you to writing the book. But can we start with you just sharing where a little bit about your career journey? Where yeah. did you go to college? What did you major in? And where did you start your career? Yeah, uh, I went to college at Northwestern University in Evanston, outside of Chicago. Um, and I was a history major. Uh, although I did take a creative writing class there. Um, I, I don't remember the name of my teacher, but it did influence me a fair amount. It was sort of one of the first times I thought, you know, maybe I maybe I really like writing. You know, this is some, something that's interesting to me and fun to me. Um, but I, I didn't feel like I could really make a career out of writing uh, and uh, decided to get into politics was one of my first interests. This was in, um, you know, shortly after Bill Clinton was first elected and there was a lot of enthusiasm in Washington. Um, so I went out to D.C. after graduation and I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years and quickly became disillusioned with that. You know, I, I just didn't like politics, uh, the the rhetoric, the lack of getting anything done. Like I, I, I realized, you know, I think my ambitions are really in the private sector. Um, and then I started working with a PR agency and one of our clients was the regional bell operating companies, uh, the former baby bell, uh, you know, at and companies. And they were all trying to get into this new field, the information superhighway, right. To, to be permitted by law to, um, you know, provide technology services over their uh, telecommunications platforms. And I just was smitten with it. You know, I remember reading about Netscape and just sort of everything that was going on with Silicon Valley. And I just thought this is where I've got to be. So I ended up applying to Berkeley, uh, went to Haas Business School full time from 96 to 98. That's where you and I met. Um, and, you know, talk about an, a, an amazing time to come out here. The character in the book kind of comes out to Silicon Valley in a similar time in a similar, you know, perhaps naive optimism about, you know, the how great the internet's going to be. I just saw it, and correctly so in hindsight, as a truly once-in-a-generation kind of transformative technology, which it certainly has been. 
Um, and after business school, you know, I dove right in. I, I did a variety of technology companies. I sort of started in bigger companies under the hypothesis that, you know, I'd sort of learn how to do it at, at big companies. So I joined 3Com, which was a huge networking company at the time. Um, and then got into smaller companies. Uh, we had, I was at a CRM software company during the, you know, height of the dot-com boom that, that had a big exit. Um, I thought, no, oh, this is easy. You know, you just do a company and you make a bunch of money and, and we're making the world a better place while doing it. Right. It was sort of the promise of Silicon Valley was there's no downside. Um, and so my wife and I both graduated from Berkeley. We yeah, settled down on the peninsula and I've been doing tech startups ever since, you know, at varying sizes, various stages, mostly actually since three come in the software internet space, both consumer side and, and more SaaS software. And, um, you know, I'd say round about mid 2015, 2016, like a lot of people, I was sort of starting to get a little burnt out. Um, I hadn't had those companies sort of exit at the pace that I thought they would. Uh, some of them flamed out. I, you know, founded companies that weren't able to raise money. And I started thinking, maybe I should write a book. You know, I would sort of tell stories to Leslie, my wife at home over the dinner table. And she'd be like, you know, you should write a book. You should write a book. Um, this is funny stuff. So I started sort of capturing that encapsulated it in a story. And, uh, but, you know, I was kind of trying to write it nights and weekends. It was very hard to make progress. Um, and then the pandemic happened. And that ended up in hindsight being sort of a fortuitous thing for me personally, at least. Um, in that, or having a silver lining, I should say that it kind of forced my hand a little bit. I was working on a startup that, you know, we were unable to raise money through the, the, through COVID, uh, and decided to shut it down. And I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to take the plunge and get into writing full time, you know, now's the time. Um, and so did it and, you know, haven't looked back. First book come, came out in August. Uh, I've written my second novel, um, and that should be coming out in early 24, uh, so yeah, it's exciting. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize you've already written your second novel. I mean, that's being prolific and really getting to work. So <laughs> I look forward yeah. to hearing more about that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm happy to share more about it. Well, I want to go back because one of the things that I think is really interesting. So I grew up in Silicon Valley. My dad worked in the Valley and yet I don't remember, he's, he was pretty at a stable mainframe company, you know, so uh -huh. he had a very long running career there. And yet, yep. you know, here we come out to Silicon Valley. Well, I was, I went back East for school, came back for business school. So was back here and we were here during, you know, a pretty, you know, interesting time. I think the internet and everything that was happening was already booming while we were in school yeah. After we came out, actually, that that's when like the first crash happened. It's so funny. I was talking to somebody recently and they were like, we, we were talking about the crash and I was like, 2008. She's like, no, no, the big one, the first one, the, you know, going back. Right. And it's just to say, you know, there are, there's a lot of ups and downs in this yes. space. And I don't think everyone always recognizes that. And even as I was looking back at your career, you had some long running stints, right? And had some different successes, but the, being in this world, especially of entrepreneurship, it asks you to pivot and to change often yeah. and to yeah. jump into like, okay, well, that one didn't move forward. Oh, we didn't get funding to go to the next step. Now I need to step into something different. And that takes some resilience. So I'm I'm curious how you managed through that because starting companies is not easy. It, it takes a lot of effort. So 
How did you navigate those times? Well, that was probably one of the biggest misconceptions I had as I got into the startup space um, was, you know, it's not about singles and doubles or even home runs. It's about grand slams, right? Like for the venture capital model to work, they're not interested in you building like a sustainable, profitable, you know, business. They're interested in intergalactic exponential growth, right? Like that's, you know, for the model to work, they invest in 10 companies, you know, seven fail outright, one or two returns their investment if they're lucky. And one out of the 10 is the one that returns the entire fund. And so, you know, I didn't, fully get that. I mean, I remember I was at companies where it's like, hey, we're growing well, we're making money, we're profitable, but you know, we're only growing 10% or 20% per year top line. Nobody cares. You know, and and that can be, I think, really um confusing for for early entrepreneurs as they sort of pitch their companies. That's probably the number one reason VCs say no is they just don't see the business having that kind of enormous breakout potential. Um, and it can be confusing for people running companies. There are just a ton of companies in the Valley that are fine, vibrant, healthy businesses, but can't raise money, you know, because they're the, the venture capitalists just aren't interested in, you know, some, there are other capital options for those private equity and other kinds of things. Uh, but that's usually when M and A happens and that sort of stuff. So I really got into that in the book. I got into some of those issues of like, you know, the 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 weird ulterior motives that it you know raises for especially the venture investors who are you know have seats around the board and and how does a executive team or the the executive in this case the protagonist you know navigate through that. Um, but you you touched on something else that I want to go back to, which is just the the origins of Silicon Valley. I I've been collaborating a fair amount on some of my book events with a woman named Margaret O'Mara, who's a professor at at University of Washington. She and I know each other from undergraduate at Northwestern, and she wrote about a book called The Code about the history of Silicon Valley. And this is a really forgotten aspect of it. It was Lockheed Martin. It was you know Fairchild and, and Intel. It, 3Com, I, you know, it the Valley is called Silicon Valley because of these big hardware companies. Um, and the whole, you know, the whole internet thing and dot-com thing really came much, much later in the, in the Valley sort of evolution. And, um, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and the more libertarian kind of VC investors sort of forget or ignore conveniently that origin, that, that, that that government investment is what laid the groundwork for Silicon Valley to even exist in the first place. And now it's sort of brushed under the rug as like, oh no, we 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 need to not pay taxes. We need no regulation. We need all these things. We'll just take the investment from the federal government and then get out of the way. It's sort of, I don't know, kind of revisionist history in my opinion. No, for sure. And isn't it, I'm gonna get this wrong, but Steve Jobs went to where was it? He went, he visited like one a particular, it was a government funded place where he got inspired for like the graphical interface, right? Yeah. So Steve Jobs definitely borrowed a lot and oh, stole yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot, right? To kind of, Absolutely. he brilliantly put it all together. But to your point, some of the foundations of what really led to other technologies have been funded by the government for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Xerox Park is, I think what you're referring to, you know, that's right here in Palo Alto and 
you know, is credited for everything from the graphical user interface to the mouse and just about everything in between. Xerox, of course, was too, you know, backwards a company to realize the the incredible potential of the inventions that they were creating. Um, but you're right. I mean, that that's really become VC's job now is to fund these things and and essentially drive R&D investment in the Valley. You know, the 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 problem with that is it just really siphons off all the profits from those inventions to a very, very small microcosm of people. Um, and, you know, it's led to a bunch of other problems, notably, you know, wealth stratification and, and gentrification and, and other kinds of things. And I, you know, that, that, that's just not good. I mean, that's another theme that I get into in the book, the, the VC investors, really become a little bit cynical about the company's potential exit. You know, they they view it as almost like a Ponzi scheme. Like, well, we'll just sell the investment up the ladder to the next gullible sucker who's willing to throw money into this thing. And I think when you get into that kind of environment, it really, it breeds, you know, uh, abuse. I mean, it, it opens the door to unethical behavior because there is no regulation. It's, you know, a microcosm of people trying to line their own pockets. And, um, you know, that, that you sort of see that story play out over and over again. Yeah. And it's true. And it's interesting, Mike, because part of what we're talking about, and I, well, let's get a little bit more into the book, which is, but it's funny when I'm reading some of the reviews for the book, some people will say like, this hits close to home, right? And right. it's perhaps more fact than fiction. And then yet you, you do say, no, this is right. all fictional, but obviously it's inspired by your experiences. And, you know, you are kind of putting a mirror up to Silicon Valley and kind of putting some observations out there into the world, like, is this who we want to be? Right. Um, and so I'm curious, like, you know, we'll get, we get more into the book, but like, how should people kind of interpret the book in terms of its perspective and representation of Silicon Valley? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of experiences that I had that are baked into the book. I mean, I tore the page out of the advice column of write what you know, you know, I, I, I felt, and and it really motivated me to write it in the first place. Frankly, I I you know Silicon Valley has an incredible uh, amount of media attention. It gets you know there's countless nonfiction books about Silicon Valley, business books, you know, um, memoirs, etc. But I didn't see I saw barely any fiction novels that I thought accurately portrayed the experience in Silicon Valley. And I think what sort of rubbed me the wrong way in both the media coverage and the nonfiction book coverage is that there was this tendency to sort of either glorify or vilify people in Silicon Valley, you know, sort of one extreme or the other. And, and we've seen certain people like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk sort of go, go from one to the other, right. Be glorified and then be vilified. And, you know, that might make for interesting stories, but to me, it sort of misses the point a little bit. And um, the, the, kind of essence that I wanted to bake into Bitflip was, you know, that we're, we're all a little bit complicit in this world, that the environment and the culture and the incentives of Silicon Valley kind of elicit the behavior that we're, that we see sometimes, right? Like the whole fake it till you make it kind of mindset um, and the win at all costs mindset, you know, there are all these things that are so baked into the DNA of Silicon Valley and, and the people who self-select to come here that it can almost blind us to 
you know, that being the reason, uh, kind of unsustainable ambition to, you know, hit on the theme of the podcast, that it blinds us to, you know, why we're making decisions and make it becomes a veil for rationalizing bad actors in the in the space. Um, you know, there's so much cult of personality in Silicon Valley that um people, a lot of founders and executives think they need to mimic that behavior in order to be successful. Um, and you know, we we've seen it tip in the last few years. I mean, the industry went from one that was very revered and felt like it could do no wrong and was the driver of economic growth and um, you know, was making the world a better place and all those kind of cliches to now, you know, it's it's regarded as big tech, right? Now it's sort of seen rightly so as having um, some pernicious elements and some negative consequences. And I think uh, people in the Valley are struggling with that, many of us. And, and I think a lot of people more broadly in society have, you know, are wringing their hands over what is, what is the impact of technology on our lives? You know, how do we um, mitigate some of the negative things, even though there have also been so many positive things to the industry? Yeah, it's definitely something to wrestle with, right? And to kind of figure out, like, how does one, if they're working within the industry, start to fit into that? So I do want to kind of frame the book a little bit for people. So you call it a corporate thriller. I was sharing earlier that I I realized like it really is kind of like the firm meets Silicon Valley, the book, The Firm, if people know what I'm talking about by John Grisham. And I reading it, I felt that, right? I felt the energy. It was a page turner. I was kind of like, what is going to happen, right? And really wanting to delve into the book. But let's give people, so the main character is Sam Hughes and he has a wife yep. and two kids. Give us more of the setting. I was kind of scared to do this because I was afraid I was going to give away too much. Yeah, no, no, but... <laughs> no. That's, that, I'm happy to. So, you know, this is where the semi-autobiographical comparisons can kind of come into play. So Sam is a transplant from Ohio. I'm a transplant from Wisconsin. You know, came here in the late '90s. Dot com boom. You know, has had a successful career, but you know, hasn't ever had the giant windfall that he hoped for. Um, and is um, the chief operating officer at a company called Inetu. Um, and in the opening chapter of the book, Sam kind of tells truth on an onstage rant. He gets thrown into it at the last second. This is where the corporate thriller part comes in because. You know, I didn't want to have people like, you know, murdering each other in the company that just sort of felt like that doesn't happen. You know, like, I wanted to be authentic. Um, but, you know, second only to life and death scenarios for many people is the fear of public speaking. And that's where the book opens. Sam is just commuting to work and he suddenly gets a call like you're on stage in 15 minutes. And so he's sort of thrust in this environment and just kind of cracks. He, he sort of says the things that are on his mind. And it ends up getting him fired by his much younger um, founder and CEO. Um, And, you know, it kind of triggers this midlife crisis, for lack of a better term, right? Where he just sort of, the the bubble's been burst or, you know, pierced. And he kind of can't, you know, talk the talk and, and, you know, expand, you know, share the rhetoric that's sort of expected of executives, especially in Silicon Valley. And so... So that's where the story sort of kicks off. And and a lot of what happens is the struggle between ambition, his own ambitions of coming to Silicon Valley and wanting to be this entrepreneurial success. And, you know, the things that really matter to him is his wife, his family, his his kids, um, and sort of those things, you know, what what is he willing to sort of trade off to realize his ambitions, his success, his success 
um, in terms of those other aspects of his life. And things get interesting and start to feel more sort of John Grisham ask when after his firing, he inadvertently discovers what he suspects is fraud within the company. And so there's a little bit of like uh, fiduciary responsibility that he feels. There's a little bit of just outright revenge and schadenfreude that he feels of like, I'm going to go stick it to this founder. Um, and there's a little bit of his own ambition in terms of, hey, maybe I can get back into the company. Maybe I can oust the founder and become the CEO. So it's sort of, that serves as this catalyst, this dangling carrot of like, oh, wait, maybe I can go back and, you know, finally realize the uh, entrepreneurial success that I've wanted to achieve for so long. Um, and, you know, what sort of happens from there is just, you know, this sort of slippery slope of decisions. And I think that's where people sort of say, you know, it feels all too real, right? Like we've all, anybody who works at tech companies has, has, there's, there's just a lot of shades of gray, right? You know, there's, there's, it's not always clear what the quote, quote unquote, right thing to do is. And, you know, we all do it. We all, you know, give our pitch to investors and we put, you know, every flower on the, on the pig to mix metaphors. And just like, that's sort of expected in Silicon Valley that you're going to spin the hype. And, um, you know, unfortunately, if you're not, if you totally lose your moral compass, that can quickly sort of escalate into outright fraud. And, you know, Theranos and other examples of that abound where that exact thing happened. You know, it's sort of like the cult of personality and the unwillingness to say no or to give up or whatever just gets to, you know, a, a dark and dangerous place. Yeah, I really loved this part of the book, Mike, that you do you're looking at ambition and you're looking at it in all these different ways and the twists and turns around it. And I realized rereading and going back and looking at how you define bit flip at the beginning of the book, you know, yes, it's zeros and ones, but you also write that you define it as the changing of one's mind, 180 degrees, and it's a changing of heart. And you really experience that in the yeah. book and this wrestling. And I'm curious, like, okay, after a 25 year career, writing this book and kind of wrestling with this dynamic within this character of one's ambition going up and down or having these twists and turns, like, wh what are your thoughts? Like in terms of yeah. like, if you were to give some counsel to others, kind of, you know, Silicon Valley is a huge employer, you know, or technology is a huge employer. And a lot of people work in this space now. It's kind of like, how do you navigate this at this time? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I came up for the title of the book before I wrote like hardly any pages, right? Like I just had used that term myself to refer to kind of a changing of mind, but it really is more, more than that. Obviously, metaphorically, it's a change of heart that's happening. And, um, you know, I was going through a very much similar thing. I mean, I was sort of going through particularly over COVID, but, but even well before that, where it was just sort of hitting the point in my career where it's like, gosh, you know, I, I, I've, I've, enjoyed this space. I can't imagine having a career in any other sector, but how much longer can I do this? You know, it's sort of like, it, it is um, a very demanding, very taxing, a lot of sacrifices kind of occupation um, for, and against very extreme odds, you know, it's just really, really hard to have a, a successful, you know, startup. And um, so I was kind of going through that self-assessment of, you know, is, am I going to do this for another 10 years, 20 years, like till I retire? Like, 
or is there another career that I could perhaps pursue that might be more fulfilling to me in other ways than financial? Um, and so, so, you know, I, as I was sort of going through that, you know, that was kind of what I wanted to write about. I mean, and that, that is where Sam is. He kind of, again, in the opening scene, his rant is kind of like this rejection of the ethos of Silicon Valley that you have to come out, you have to, you know, burn nights and weekends and dedicate your entire life, sleep in the office kind of thing to make this company successful. And, you know, 99% of the time it's not, and you're sort of left with worthless stock, but the 1% when you do, you know, it may not even be you who's realizing the, the windfall from that, right? It's, it's oftentimes your investors and others that you're working with. And, um, that's very disillusioning, right? And and I think that has happened at really every level within tech companies. I, I've written about on my blog, uh, my website, miketrig.com, anyone wants to check it out, but the what I call the, the, the identity crisis in Silicon Valley, like the promise of Silicon Valley for me, at least when I came out in the late 90s was you can have, you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, you can make a lot of money in this industry and you're making the world a better place. Like this isn't like Wall Street. We're not like big oil or big pharma or these, you know, evil empire businesses. We're the good guys. And as the we're the good guys thing and make the world a better place line became more and more cynical, you know, people became more and more cynical about that. It just is triggered for a lot of people like, well, wait a minute, am I, why am I doing this again? Am I just in it for the money? You know, um, and I think that, the personal politics of a lot of people in Silicon Valley is, you know, leans on the progressive side. You know, we live in the Bay Area, you know, a lot of people want to do the right thing. They want, you know, they don't want to be part of an industry that has negative effects on society. And, and you know, you're seeing symptoms of this, the great resignation, the quiet quitting, like a lot of the trends in the modern workplace that have really come to light during COVID, especially, are in this vein, you know, I saw a stat recently, and I think it was a San Francisco Chronicle survey that 25 to 35 year olds, 25% of them left San Francisco during, during the uh, pandemic. And like, that is an incredible measure of those people who were, you know, Sam's age when he came out here, my age, when I came out here, just saying like, Wayne, I'm not sure I'm into this, you know, I'm not sure this is what I want to be doing. So it is really interesting. Again, being a California native and Bay Area native, it was interesting during our time of starting business school, like there was some stat of like 35 to 40% of business school graduates came to the Bay Area during that time. Yeah. And it was like, it used to be a lot of business school graduates would go to New York, right? And right. they're kind of following the money to some degree, right. Right? right? And yet you're right. I think at that time, I think there was so much energy and positive energy about like, ooh, look at all this cool stuff we can build and we're going to be bringing new interesting things out into the marketplace, right? And I think partly like we glorify what Silicon Valley kind of can be. And I think, you know, there's like you're saying, there's this dark side of it too, or these truths that are a component of working within startups or within VC backed companies, um, but not everybody really knows about. And so, yeah, I'm, do you want to say something about that, Mike? Well, you're a hundred percent right. And I think that was for me, you know, especially having been a founder and an executive at a lot of companies and, and oftentimes I, my role was sort of head of marketing at several of these. I realized like, 
I am the cheerleader, right? I am the one sort of spinning the, you know, mixing the Kool-Aid and trying to get everybody excited about the story and the vision and everything else. And um, that is so integral to so many startups, right? Like this, like belief, this kind of almost blind optimism to the mission of the company. And um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when that gets, when that dissolves, it really, you know, that's when companies internally can really spiral because people are, people lose that sense of mission and purpose. And when that gets stripped away, it can feel, you know, just like a job, you know? And, and, and I think you touched on another thing that I think is fascinating again, sort of thinking about the history of Silicon Valley. And I, and I really want to write about this in the book, you know, Sam is from Ohio, but many characters in the book, just like many characters in the actual Silicon Valley are transplants from somewhere else, right? There was a self-selection process. Often the most, you know, the best and brightest and most ambitious people said, you know, I'm leaving my Midwestern town. I'm, you know, this isn't good enough for me. I'm going to go to where the opportunity is, which is Silicon Valley. And so that, that has an incredible positive effect in that you get this group of people who's smart and ambitious and driven and, and willing to take risks and a whole culture in Silicon Valley that ex- accepts, you know, failure. It's not viewed as a, you know, black spot on your resume to have been at a company that didn't, didn't pan out. Um, yet it also creates, you know, a lot of chest thumping, a lot of ego, you know, in, in, in the Valley. Um, and, uh, I think oftentimes kind of an unfair comparison, right? We, we talked about before we started recording that, you know, a lot of people, I felt this way. It's like, if I'm not Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or whomever, like I'm a failure, you know? And, and I think a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially founders, can feel that way. It's very easy to kind of compare yourself to this narrative of, you know, success at all costs. And if it's not a unicorn company, like you've, you've, you've somehow failed yourself and failed everyone else. Um, that's pretty, you know, detrimental to your mental health and to your just overall happiness in the job. And so, um, anyway, I, 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 that was another big theme in the book. That's basically, you know, me talking in the opening scene where Sam says some of the stuff I just said to this audience of people at this conference, you know, that, that, that was my sentiment. Like, don't let yourself be defined by that one narrative of success. Yeah, I love that because it really is about like, who's defining that yardstick or your, you know, your metrics of how you're defining success for yourself. And like you said, it's like, you know, you you shared earlier that you were at companies that were growing 10 to 20% per year were profitable. It's like, for most companies, they would kill for that, right? right I right. mean, to grow at 10, 10 to 20%, that's actually considered a growth stock on, right. I, I believe, on the, the stock exchange. So it's kind of like, what? Like in Silicon Valley, that's not good enough, right? And it is not a way to get funding for that. Seems a little crazy. And it's true. There is research that sh- shows that like when we have expectations that are just so far out of whack with what reality is, that can cause yeah. depression, right? We're reaching yeah. for something so for far sure. that it's like, how am I ever going to get there. And so, you know, for even for you, as you're stepping into this creative writing space and this next phase of where you're putting your attention and energy for your career, like how do how are you thinking about success for yourself perhaps differently now? 
It, it is very different. I mean, I, I like to joke that I went from the one uh, from an occupation that had you know extremely low likelihood of success as being an entrepreneur and one that has an even lower likelihood <laughs> right. of success of being an author. I, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. But, you know, for me, success in this new endeavor is not about any kind of financial reward, fortunately, because it's very hard to make money in publishing. Um, it's really about influencing the conversation. Like I, I, for me, like the book, um, you know, it was very important for me for it to be a cultural critique, right? Like I wanted to, as you said, hold the mirror up to our, uh, this environment, this culture, this uh, moment in time, uh, and our own behaviors, right. In the, in that ecosystem. And so, um, it's been incredibly fun to do the media opportunities, podcasts like this, live events, et cetera, where, you know, I've had a chance to talk about these topics and engage, um, you know, the audience in, and, and see how they're reacting and what themes and messages and morals to the story they're picking out of the book. That's really what I'm in it for. And, um, you know, I'm in a fortunate place, thanks to my wife, who's still working where, you know, I can afford to sort of pursue this you know, not as a hobby, really, it is my, I consider it my occupation now, but not have to worry as much as I would have, you know, if I'd pursued this when I was 22, um, about, you know, the financial aspect of it. Yeah. And I'm curious about that because, you know, I've been experiencing, this started to happen probably five to 10 years ago, where I'd start to talk with some of my friends and colleagues and peers, and they were like, you know, my job, fine. Like, but I really you know, I have a very good friend who she is also writing fiction books, right? Like I just want to be writing my books, right? right. And other people, I'm called to creativity. I, I say I'm a, an artist who creates art through left brain thinking, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but so I think it's, it's interesting to me, like, cause there's research out there that suggests like, oh, as you get older, your creativity actually diminishes. And I just, I kind of want to call BS to that, to that. So I find it interesting that many of us are stepping into the space of creativity. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Mike. I do. I think I agree with you. I feel like I have a lot of friends and colleagues who've, um, you know, gravitated towards more creative, ex, you know, uh, uh, activities in their forties, fifties, sixties, you know, that I, I, and I think, you know, gosh, if you look at like some of the other authors who are in, um, the same publisher that I published through, you know, it's, it's, I'm probably on the younger end of the spectrum, you know, compared to some of the other authors. So it definitely seems to be the case in writing. Um, you know, one of the things though, that I realized I, I come from a pretty creative family. My sister, one of my sisters is an artist in Brooklyn and has been a fine artist, you know, her whole career, painting, sculpture, et cetera. Uh, my other sister is a dancer and, and, you know, was a dance major and it didn't, occur to me until pretty late in my career that entrepreneurship is a creative occupation as well. I mean, that is what I loved about it from the very start is this ability to kind of create something out of nothing, you know, to have an idea that you morph and, 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 you know, refine and turn into, um, an actual product was the by far most gratifying thing to me about being a, a, a startup founder and entrepreneur. And another realization as I've pivoted into writing is just how similar being an author is to being an entrepreneur. I'm actually, you know, working on a blog post on this subject, but, you know, people think of, you know, being an author and it is, it can be a very solitary 
occupation when you're, you know, first writing your story. <clears throat> but as you get through, get into like the editing process and publishing process and the promotion and publicity, it becomes a team sport very quickly. And um, you need to be able to, you know, work with a team, kind of um, identify talents from, you know, designers to editors to proofreaders. Um, you need to, as you're launching the book, the phase I'm at with, with BitFlip, you know, it becomes all about promotion and publicity and building a brand and some of the things that I'm really comfortable doing from my entrepreneurial days. So, and that frankly, a lot of authors aren't as quite as comfortable doing, right. If they're really more focused on the writing side of it. And so it's been interesting to see that element really come, you know, hit me in the head of like, Oh, I'm kind of doing another startup. It's just that my product is a book and, you know, my brand is me and, you know, there are some differences certainly, but, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities. I love that. And I'm curious, one of the things I was going to ask you was about how you are dealing with your own identity as you step into this next chapter. Cause a lot of times when people step away from having the big title or doing something in a little bit more traditional in quotes kind of way, I mean, you're still an angel investor, you're still advising, but you are right. kind of saying like, I'm primarily putting being an author first. And I'm curious if like that mental connection between like, hey, what I was doing previously is actually very transferable to what I'm doing now. Has that helped at all in that identity shift? Or did you even have any challenges with that identity shift? Yeah, I think I think for me, you know, probably the hardest part of the transition is just, you know, the the team, the people, right? Like I fairly outgoing person, uh, you know, extroverted. I always loved managing teams and working with teams and building teams and seeing people's professional development. Um, and you don't get that as a writer really, right? It is, you do have a team, but they're, you know, your publisher or they're your publicist, like, and especially during COVID, you know, you kind of, it's all virtual as everybody's virtual, um, but that's the part that I probably most miss from my, you know, previous professional career is, is, is the team and the people, um, and the camaraderie that that fosters. I mean, so many of my friends today are people I worked with, right. I mean, and, and those relationships end up being really influential, um, in, in, over the course of your career. So, but you're right. I mean, I do think that I, struggled with that a little bit personally for, you know, kind of a couple years as I was starting to think about writing this, it was like, well, what does this mean if I do this? You know, is, am I giving up the career that I've built over 20 plus years, you know, permanently? Am I um, going to come back to it? Is this going to be a side hustle? Like what, 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 is what is it that I'm doing? Um, and I think, I think for me, what got me kind of comfortable with, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm never going to go back into tech. I could envision it potentially, but what kind of made me comfortable setting it down was, you know, the recognition that the part that I really loved was that primordial ooze of like the early, early stage, right? Like building the first product, building the first team, raising the first money. And I, I started to view that maybe more realistically, almost as a hobby, right? As I did startups later in my career, 
I was doing it because I loved that part of the process. I wasn't so focused on the outcome because I sort of knew from experience that the outcome is very, very hard to realize. If you're only doing it for an out, the outcome, chances are you're going to be upset and disappointed. And so, so I, I wouldn't say that I viewed my job as a hobby, but I, but I got into roles where I was more of like an EIR with a couple of um, investment funds where I was kind of trying to get an idea off the ground for them or I was advising people, did a couple of investments in uh, startups that I just really liked the entrepreneur and thought it was an interesting concept and didn't want to get into it full time, but wanted to be, you know, sort of involved and, and share my, my two cents. Um, and I, I found that all very engaging and very interesting. And, you know, that sort of, I think, set me up to add authoring into that basket of activity and then kind of gradually transition into, you know, I'm, I'm an author. I, the other thing that I guess I would have to admit is that, you know, there was a two-year period there or so where, you know, people would ask me, well, what do you do? And I'm like, I don't feel like I can say author yet. Like if I said author, they're like, oh, great. You know, can I buy your book? It's like, well, it's not out yet, right? So I think for me, this milestone last this August, uh, when the book finally came out, which is just an incredibly arduous and long, long process. But that was sort of when I was finally like, okay, I, I have a book out. I can properly claim to be an author. Uh, you know, the, the, the new career has set sail basically. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and congratulations again. And I do encourage people to get the book. It, it really is a fun read. And also it will get you thinking, right, about all these different topics that we've been yeah. talking about today, Mike. This has been so fun to have you on. I'm thrilled. I'm wondering if you have a final piece of like counsel or a main takeaway is you think about, we were talking about sustainable ambition earlier before we got started, but like on how people can achieve sustainable ambition from your perspective? Well, first of all, as I said, I love that term, sustainable ambition, because, you know, to me, it's, again, it's not the glorify or vilify. It's not the one extreme or the other. It's it's saying, hey, ambition is great. Like you, you, you can, you, you want to have, it gives you mission. It gives you purpose. It gives you fulfillment. There's so many things about having an ambition and attaining elements of that vision for yourself and your career it's, but it does have to be sustainable, right? You, I think there's just too many examples in Silicon Valley, um, especially of ambition run amok, you know, where it's like ambition for ambition's sake, and it's all about the scorecard and all about the exit and the outcome. And that is anybody who's in the midst of that will admit in a, in a moment of clarity is super unfulfilling, right? Because it, you kind of set yourself up for something that isn't almost is almost entirely unattainable, right? And so you're never going to be sort of satisfied. Um, you know, I, I know many many people who seem to never have enough, seem to never be satisfied. And you know, I sort of further not to get too sort of political or, or big picture, but I think if you track that out or extrapolate that out, um, that kind of unbridled ambition is a real problem in the world right now. I think many of like our global, biggest global problems can kind of be traced back to an over ambition, overabundance of ambition. Um, it's driving global warming because too many people have cars and other things. It's driving 
you know, waste, it's driving consumerism, it's driving gentrification. You know, there's so many negative aspects of too many people wanting too much stuff and not being willing to be happier with what they have. And that message is one that is almost blasphemous in Silicon Valley of like, be happy with what you have and be satisfied with the journey, not the destination, not just the destination. Um, but that to me is what sustainable ambition is about. And that's what the book really ended up being about is, you know, Sam is, is not just the protagonist. He's also the antagonist, right? Like he sort of lets his ambitions get the better of him and loses a lot along the way. And, um, you know, I wanted it to be a cautionary tale for people coming to Silicon Valley, you know, embarking on their careers to say, okay, I need to keep this in balance. I need to do this in a way that is sustainable, not just for a two years of doing a startup, but for the 40 years of my career. I love that. And I think it's a great read to also, like you're saying, kind of open people's eyes up, right? And have them think a little bit differently if they step into this space. So I was going to ask you what your next ambition is, but you you kind of shared, you have another book in the works. So that's great. So if people want to stay in touch, I know you mentioned mytrig.com, they can find the book, but what, where else is that where we should point people to find you and to find more of your work, Mike? Yes, it's probably the easiest hub. Um, you know, from there, you can get to where you can buy the book. You can get to, you know, all my social media stuff. Um, but, uh, I do have another book. There's actually a blurb about that book, uh, on my website as well. Uh, the working title is called burner as in a burner phone. Um, so it leans, it, it sort of stays in the lane of technology's impact on our lives and modern life. Um, but it doesn't, it's not a sequel or anything to the first book It uh, new characters, new premise, uh, and kind of leans a little bit more into, I guess I'd call it the sort of psychological thriller. You know, it's not set in a corporate setting. Uh, it's two young people, and and um, uh, yeah, and and it's very zeitgeist. I mean, it's very of the moment in terms of misinformation, disinformation, social media manipulation. You know, a lot of topics um, that are very top of mind. I think in the in the conversation right now. Oh, I love it. I'm already excited. <laughs> when is yeah. it coming out again? <laughs> you said like 2024. I, we don't have an exact update. Yeah. It's looking like spring of 2024. So it's always a long journey. Yeah, exactly. People don't realize the writing of a book. I'm starting my own. Yeah, it's it's a long journey. So, well, Mike, this has been fabulous. Congratulations on the book. This has been such Thank a fun you. conversation. Thanks for being on. Uh, my pleasure, Kathy. It was really a pleasure. For listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.